0: You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free City Church, my name is Casey and I'm a pastor here. And uh, we exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we are, We're, we're, we're still online, but we hope that that is changing soon. We're still online and you know that because you're either in a living room of a free city house church or you're in your own living room or you're driving or you're running or you're doing whatever while you're listening to this. But we hope that that is changing soon, that soon we'll be stepping toward corporate worship. And the way it looks like it's going to happen is it looks like we'll be using a sister church space and in that space we'll be moving to Sunday evening. So you should be seeing a lot of information come out really, really soon to help you prepare for that. It'll feel a lot like Free City Church normally. There'll be a few extra safety precautions. Uh, So just be watching for that as that's coming out. And we are working hard to make that happen in a way that makes as most people as safe as possible and as comfortable as possible. But just so you know, like we're working toward that end, Sunday evenings, Sister Church, and we will keep you in the loop. And so wherever you are, I pray that this finds you increasingly aware of your need for Jesus, but also increasingly aware of His grace and comfort for you, and knowing that His grace, sometimes it is comfortable, like it feels like grace, it feels like comfort, and sometimes it feels like distress. I was reminded this week that sometimes the grace of God feels uncomfortable, On on the night that Jesus was arrested, after the disciples had spent time uh, arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom of God, at some point Jesus slipped away from the table, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he brought a basin of water to each of the disciples, and he started to wash their feet. But by the time he got to to Peter, Peter looks down at him and says, No, my Lord, you can't wash my feet. If anything, I should be washing your feet. And he says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And so then Peter turns around and says, well, then not just my feet, but my my head and my hands. And he was saying this in response to Jesus. He was saying, the grace you're doing for me right now, it is uncomfortable. But what Jesus was saying was the only way to be with God is for God to serve you. And to wash you with his atoning grace. For Peter, in that moment, it was uncomfortable. Sometimes the grace of God is like a soothing salve. Sometimes the grace of God is just uncomfortable. Sometimes the grace of God is even painful in our life, but it is always needed, it is always good, and it is always right. And so wherever this finds, I hope you can see the grace of God in your life, whatever it feels like. You know, in thinking about this, like as a church, we want to celebrate the grace of God and strive to walk in it and proclaim it to the lost world, wherever it finds us. In Ephesians 5, for the third week in a row, we're talking about the grace of God in the calling of, of marriage, like it is a grace of God that comes to some of our lives, and sometimes it marriage can be a soothing salve in your life. Sometimes you find it, and it feels a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes it can even be painful, but it's good. You know, also like when we talk about this. Like we also want to be a church that holds up the, the calling of singleness as a beautiful calling that God calls us. It is a grace from God that all of us, 1 Corinthians, it's going to lead us to know that all of us at some point in time will be in the calling of singleness. It might be temporary or it might be a lifelong calling. And it is good. Sometimes it is comfortable. Sometimes it is uncomfortable. Sometimes it can be painful. But even thinking about this, this week, like like think about this. Even for our married people, all of us, 50% of our married people in the room, not this room, all the rooms around, 50% of them will one day be single again. Back in that calling that at times can be painful, at times can be comforting, but it's always good. And so wherever the grace of God finds you, I pray that it what we learn about marriage falls on really fertile soil. In a book that I read by Sam Alberry, Seven Myths About Singleness, he says this He says, The way we misunderstand singleness reflects the fact that we are looking to marriage unbiblical and unhealthy ways. Both marriage and singleness testify to the gospel. Marriage shows us the shape of the gospel in that it models the covenant promise that God has made to us in Christ. Singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel because it shows us that the reality of what marriage points to, which is our own relationship with Jesus. You know, actually, as I was studying for Ephesians 5, I was also really haunted by our racial past that can even be reflected in marriage. Like, like, it wasn't legal for interracial couples to be married in the United States over the entire United States until June 12, 1967. Like, that, that's not that long ago. Like, like, my dad would have been in his 20s, and you might be doing the math right now to figure out how old I am. Pretty old. It's not that long ago. Like for cultural change, like our parent generation, part of their lives were spent where it wasn't even legal for interracial couples to marry. Like it's not that far ago that, that some of those things still hang on. And for some of our couples who are in beautiful interracial marriages, they have felt the sting of that from one time to another. Like even beautiful situations like marriage have felt the sting of sin. And so Ephesians 5 and the grace of God that falls upon us hits us in so many different places. And it's worth even noting this, that you back up to 1967 and certainly a little thereafter. There would have been a lot of churches that would have looked at that ruling and said, the ruling is wrong. Like when we look at Ephesians 5, There's so much that it says to where we are in life, wherever we are. So let's get started. I want to start in in verse 21. And so if you notice, we we start with verse 21 and it says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, now verse 21 is not the beginning of this section. That happens in, in verse 22. Verse 21 is the end of the section that came before that started back in verse 18, And so in verse 18, what we see is after the main verb where it says, be filled with the Spirit, we see five participles that follow, that describe, like an adjective would, but a participle, describing what being filled by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit of God, to be filled by the Holy Spirit. This is how it looks in present life. And so so walk with this. Jump back to verse 18. It says this, be filled with the Spirit. That's the main verb, and so that is what everything is now going to help us unpack. So be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And so the first three I-N-G verbs, so the first three participles are addressing, singing, and making melody. Addressing singing and making melody like they describe a singing life. Being filled with the Holy Spirit produces a heart that sings in whatever circumstances we find. And sometimes that song can be loud and it can be very upfront, very present and very felt. But the gospel has infiltrated our lives to produce a heart that can sing wherever we are. And so it says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing, singing, making melody. It's describing this singing life, that a life that's being transformed by the gospel of Jesus can make all music in all situations. Wherever you are in life, the Spirit of God can make your heart sing. Can make your heart sing, but it goes on. So that's the first three. Then we see the fourth one in verse 20. It says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fourth participle. And it describes what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. It's a thankfulness, giving thanks, an enduring thankfulness. When the gospel takes a hold of your life, it doesn't, it doesn't shield you from pain. It transform you in the presence of pain. Like, like one way to describe an, an enduring, penetrating, lasting thankfulness. A thankfulness that can endure wherever you are. Now look, we're going to get to the last participle. So we've seen four of them. And this is where we started. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, these aren't things that we just interchange. And so it's not like it's a time that I have a singing heart and then I get past that and now I need a thankful heart. And then as soon as I have to put a submitting heart on, like those can't go together because that's hard. That's coming across my sin nature to put me in a place where I have to deny myself. It's saying that these things should go together. A submitting heart is a heart that sings and a heart that has thankfulness. And this is hard. Like this isn't saying that once a a submitting heart comes in that abruptly those other things should stop. It says that they should be sustained through it. That there should be a song in your heart in whatever circumstances that is the presence of God in you that is filling your life in such a way that it might be painful and it might be difficult. There might even be a sense of like, I don't know if this is all going to work out, but it's an abiding presence that Jesus himself said, it's better that I go so that the Holy Spirit of God can come. These are describing what a life filled with the Spirit is, a life that is entrenched in the truths of the gospel that the gospel shapes all of these things for. Like we don't abandon a singing heart and a thankful heart to put on a submitting heart. We learn, we lean more deeply into them. And, And I I know what you're thinking. Like, I I know what you're thinking. Like, you're saying a heart that submits, submits to what? And the answer would be to everything that follows to the end of the book. And and so first, like, we're we're still looking in Ephesians 5 and verses 22 through 33. We're looking at what does it look like for us to submit to how God leads us in marriage. And this is the last week we're going to deal on that. Or it's going to talk about a heart that submits to God's design in raising children and doing family in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Or in working and leading people, either as a worker or as a boss in verses 5 through 9. And then even a heart that submits to the mission of God that will lead you into dangerous spiritual battle in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. That even in the cry of battle, we could have a heart that is thankful, that sings, that is working to deny the flesh, but it still sings. So the last two weeks we focused on two things that, that marriage is. The first week we focused marriage is a covenant. And so marriage is a covenant. It's it's a promise. It's not a declaration of just present love. It's not saying I just love you now. It's a promise of future love. No matter what tomorrow brings, I will love you. I'm making a promise for richer or poorer until death do we part. In health, in sickness, whatever tomorrow brings, it's a promise. And then last week we looked at marriage as friendship. That In Genesis 2, when it describes what marriage is, it says that there was no suitable helper, no companion for Adam. And so God brought him a friend. And then we we walk through the Proverbs just to really highlight what friendship is and how that's available to us. And, And so this week, like this week, I want to focus on really two ideas. The form of marriage. How does God lead us for marriage to work? And then the, the danger of marriage. Now, I've had a couple people ask about resources. And um, in this in pandemic alone, um, we've walked three couples through the meaning of marriage because uh, that's one of the texts that we use for premarital counseling. And so at any given time, any given year, I'm probably doing anywhere from four to, to seven couples through premar- premarital counseling. And we walk through Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. And so I encourage anybody to read that. Like, married or single, just married, thinking about married, like, well-suited in my singleness, and I see God using it. Like, it will benefit you. It is gospel-rich, and it will benefit you. But that is a plug for that. So, two things we want to look at. First, the form of marriage. Second, the danger of marriage. And so, the very, very first, like, the form of marriage. And we're going to see these words, love And respect. They're really, really loud in verse 33, but love and respect. And so I just want to notice a couple things. First, like what you see is it addresses wives and husbands differently, equally called by God, equally reflective of the nature of God, equally in standing of salvation and and the glory of God to bestow on it. But it talks to husbands and wives like differently. Like like first, husbands and wives are addressed differently. And so let's just walk through this really, really fast. Kinsey and I are uh, re-watching um, The Office. And last week we just watched, I don't know what episode, we're, we're deep into it. But we just watched where uh, they discovered parkour. And so parkour is where you're trying to get from group from A to B, but you try to do it as fast as possible. And you try to do it as like, flashy as possible. And so what we're about to do through these verses, I'm going to call parkour preaching. We're going to succinctly say what the text is saying, and we're going to do it so quick that you don't have a chance to be upset about it until we're all the way done. And so the first thing, it says, we can ask this question, what are wives to do? And it says, wives are to grant husbands leadership in the marriage. Look at verse 22. It says, wives... Submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Parkour. And so right here, like, we say a word, like it says, submit, and we don't like to say that word. Like, we, like, when I was talking about a singing heart and a thankful heart and then a submitting heart, like, even in that, we're like, oh, I want a singing heart. And then you say, I want a thankful heart. Like, I want those things. But what's accompanied with that with a spirit-filled life is also a submitting heart, one to another. Not just in a horizontal relationship, but all of us to one another, also in a or vertical relationship, also in a horizontal relationship. And so when it starts off, it says, what are wives to do? One way that we could say it, wives are to grant husbands leadership in the marriage. Now, now, some interesting things about this text. Like, the word submit doesn't even actually exist in verse 22. It's carried over from verse 21. And so we ended in verse 21 where it says, submitting one to another and everything. And then, like, the literal thing that verse 22, it basically says something like this likewise, wives to your own husbands. In the manner as to the Lord. And, and so it carries that word from verse 21 to verse 22. And then it goes on to say, and really carrying all those words, like, what should this look like? It should look like a singing, thankful, granting of leadership to your husband that will show a countercultural and beauty about how the church relates to Jesus. Like, what it starts off with is, this granting leadership to your husband, it's talking about a certain form that exists in marriage. And we'll come back, but look at, look at what it says to husbands. Starting in verse 25 and really through 29, it's going to say, Husbands, lovingly sacrifice for your wives. And there's actually a whole lot more language here that's, that's dedicated to the role of how do husbands do this. And so look at verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the first question would be, how did Jesus give himself up? He died in her place. He willingly walked in. Into pain, willingly walked into demise for the beautification and for the hope of the church, for you and I. And so, right away, when it says, What does the sacrificial leadership look like? it says, It comes with pain. Like, notice that, that a wife is not asked to grant her husband leadership to get his way. But to lead in a countercultural sacrificial way, husbands lead in loving sacrificial ways. verse 26 it goes on and it says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish you know it, if if verses 20, if verse 25 was telling us what to do, lovingly sacrifice. Ver, verse 26 through 27 is telling us like the direction of that loving and sacrifice. And it's saying things like this: toward righteousness. Like it says, you know, we could say another way, you know, if righteous, we could say toward good and beauty. Toward something that is, that everybody would want to acquire, something that's good. Look at these words. It says, sanctify. Cleanses, washes, truth of the scripture. It it, it says, press toward the, the goal to be present, to be presented in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, to be holy and without blemish. Like those are beautiful words. And when it looks at, hey, husbands, what are you supposed to do? Lovingly sacrifice. In what direction? Toward beauty and goodness. And then look at verse 28. This would probably tell us a little bit more of the manner. What does the process all along the way look like? Verse 28, it says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Like words of the manner, like it says, in the the same direction, but nourishing and cherishing regardless. And the example is in the same way that you love your own body. Like like pressing into that idea, like I didn't mean to do this, but it happened. I came up with like three three Ps. Like that relationship with your body, like we we push our body. We 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 protect our body. And then I, I we pamper our body. And so it just means we do something that we like. Like there's, there's pleasures that we want to do, that we want to give our body. So we, first, we push our body. As you get older, your body wants to disobey you. Like you tell your body to do things and your body says things like you better not. But you're at a place where you've got to push your body or it's never going to keep or reach the potential that it's supposed to do. And so when it talks about the man and the relationship with your body, it says that, man, there is this this vision ahead about the marriage, a vision about the wife, a vision about your role. There's a vision for your family, and it's your job to push in that direction for good and beautiful things. And what is so dangerous is the default position for husbands is more lackadaisical, and let's just see what happens. But there's a pushing. There's also a a protecting. Your your body naturally recoils away from pain. It, It naturally wants to protect himself. And a husband's relationship to his wife is to know what is hurtful or harmful and to strive toward what is good and right. That means there has to be an intimate knowledge of I know about past wounds and past experiences that I'm careful around those things. They might be something that really wouldn't hurt anyone or other people as deeply, but it hurts your wife deeply because of past experience. There's a knowing and an intimacy and a want to protect. You know, this analogy, and it's the only word I could come up with, and I wasn't trying to alliterate it, but this this pamper like we all have different ideas of what pampering is, like things that we love to do, that if we get a chance, they're kind of special to us. I mean, you know, it it might be food, or it might be, it might be drink, or it might be massages, or it might be like manicures, or pedicures, or it might be running. Some people don't just run because they know it's good for them. They love to run, and it's special to them. Like whatever that is, like we try to take special time, and it, there's something really beautiful. There's something really beautiful about a husband who loves the Lord and wants to honor his wife and knows about those special pamperings and says, man, I'm going to sacrifice for those ends. And Jesus does all of those things for the church. Like, think about the church. Jesus pushes the church to be what it's called to be. Like, we wouldn't get there if Jesus didn't push. And Jesus is perfect. He has perfect knowledge. He knows exactly where to go, exactly what to do. And husbands are not. Husbands are selfish, and husbands are plagued with sin, and they don't have unlimited knowledge, but they're to press into the heart of Jesus, and they're to push. Jesus pushes the church. Jesus protects the church. He says the gates of hell won't be able to stand against it. And I think that includes a virus. I I think that includes a recession. I think that includes things in our culture that are uncomfortable to talk about, like existing racism and problems. I think it includes all of that. He says, man, I'm going to push the church with those things. I'm going to refine the church with those things. I'm going to protect the church in those things. And Jesus loves to do special things to express love for his church. Not just practical things, like he loves to. I mean, the first thing that we looked under the form of marriage is what are wives to do to grant husbands leadership in the marriage? Then then it says, you know, what what are husbands to do? To lovingly sacrifice for their wives in a cruciform look that resembles what Jesus has done for the church. And now I just want to ask this. What are both the husband and the wife to do? They're to strive for singing, thankful, permanent commitment. Like, Like look at, you know, in verses 18 through 21, To set this passage up, like husbands and wives are are to focus on Jesus. So we're pulling those words from back in 18 to 21, this idea of singing, a singing heart, this idea of a thankful heart, this idea of a submitting heart. And that pulls all the way till we get to verse 31. And verse 31, we've looked at it a little bit every week, where it just says that there's this clinging like in verse 31, we're supposed to cling to one another. We're supposed to hold fast. And that kind of grip strength is hard sometimes. You know, it wasn't too long ago is within the pandemic because we were getting bored. We had a hanging competition, and I'm currently in third place in my family. Kinsey's in first place. Anna, my youngest, is in second place, and I am in third place. There's not much to it like we just grab a hold of the rings, we pick up our feet, and you start the timer, and you just hang. There's not a lot of technique. It's not something you just have to think a whole lot about. It's not something that there's just a perfect technique that if you don't get the perfect technique, it's not going to work out. It's an enduring thing. That when it starts to hurt, you hang on because you expect the grace of God to be on the other side of that hurt. Like there's a clinging nature. There's a commitment. And what we're pulling all those same verbs to say that we're trying and we're fighting for a singing nature, a thankful nature, a submitting to what God has for us nature. Hanging on to marriage can be hard at times. The form of marriage says, wives, grant your husband leadership. It can be really hard at times. I mean, I feel the same fear. What, what if they're not loving? What if they're not sacrificial? Or, or, or it says, husbands, like, die to yourself in sacrificial leaders. That can be really hard at times. Like, what if, what if my wife cuts on me and tears me down? What if she takes advantage of those vulnerable moments? Like these are huge dangers and fears and that is why God addresses the form of marriage. That is why 2 Corinthians 6:14 says you should not marry someone who is not a Christian. That furthermore like you shouldn't marry someone who isn't already committed to following after Jesus in observable ways that demonstrate that they believe Jesus is authoritative and good in their life. Marriage is risky. Everyone innately feels that. Like, you should be careful who you marry. The Bible raises that and says you are opening yourself up to a certain form that right here, it doesn't have any if and then clauses. Like, that should sober us as we think about marriage. Like, everyone innately knows that you shouldn't marry just anyone. I mean, even even my my, my kids. Uh, we, Kenzie on Pandora, she has a Carrie Underwood uh, station. And if you get a Carrie Underwood station, you get like every genre out there. Like with, with Carrie Underwood, you get all three Taylor Swift's, all of them. You, you get a lot of worship music. You get a lot of Lecrae. Like you get a little bit of everything. And so we were uh, listening to the Carrie Underwood, and all of a sudden her song Last Name came up where it's like I don't even know my last name. My mama would be so ashamed. It started off, "Hey cutie, some 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 some." And then I don't even know my last name. And Liv looks at me and says, "How would you get married and not know your last name?" And all of a sudden I have to explain like the, the setting, like the Vegas type setting where it's like, "Well, I mean, it's a song and by this time other kids are filtering in including Cruz. It is a song that, you know, About someone making bad choices and they get drunk and they can't remember what they did. And then they wake up with someone they don't know and they find out that they're married. And then I had to explain, like, what's drunk? Well, drunk is when you drink too much alcohol and it affects you. And then Cruz says, well, wait a minute, you drink beer? I'm like, not much. Even they know you have to be careful. You have to be careful in who you marry. And if any of the words of verse 22 all the way through 31, if any of those tripped you up, I want to point out the words of verse 32 and 33. First in verse 32 it says, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is saying that when marriage functions like this. It reflects an aspect of our relationship with Jesus in the promise of the gospel. And we're going to come back to that. But when we read all together, it's almost like, you know, Paul, he gets on and he says, listen, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, you know, and then he says, okay, wives like this, and he says, husbands like this, and then he gets wrapped up to say, man, this is all reflective of what we actually have in the gospel, an actual greater relationship that some of this points up to that. He gets like wrapped up in this idea And then it's like he almost realized, oh, I'm running out of time. I just need to come back, and I just need to summarize. And he summarizes everything in verse 33. And so he says, however. And so he just says, hey, this is a mystery. I'm saying it refers to to Jesus and the church in the most profound ways. It's beautiful. And then he says, however, let me summarize. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love and and respect. Like, there's a book written about that. Love and respect. And, you know, what, what kind of marriage would you have if both people just focused on that? Love and respect. Now, certainly, both husbands and wives should act loving to each other and consider the other before themselves. Certainly. You know, both husbands and wives want to feel loved. Certainly, both husbands and wives want to feel respected by the other. But, like, with almost acute clarity, Paul summarizes so many of the problems that I see when marriages get kind of funky. So many of the problems. Like, in marriage, like, most hurting marriages that I have personally seen, I actually can't think of one that doesn't fit this model. I'm not saying it's not out there, but most marriages that I've personally seen, like when I'm talking to the husband, the common complaint of the husband really boils down to this. She doesn't respect me. Like, like she demands that I pursue her better, that I'm more tender and I do these things. And then I try to do those things. And she points out all of my failures, how I didn't do it right. I didn't put enough. She just doesn't respect. She doesn't value the work that I do put in, always pointing out my flaws, What is that? The heart of it, it's a lack of respect. It's not a respectful heart, like like with clarity. Or or most hurting marriages that I see, like the common complaint of the wife could be boiled down to this: he doesn't love me. When he looks at me, he doesn't look at me as something profoundly special. I feel like an extra. I feel like a leftover. I feel like an add-on. I'm not special to him. Like with clarity, verse 33 explains the rails and the needs that I see in marriage all around me. You know, when husbands love your wife, wives Respect your husbands. Proverbs 18.22, it says that your wife is a special gift to you, a good thing. 1 Peter 3, 7, it, it says that she is the weaker vessel. and We have to work with that a little bit. It's not talking about like body strength. It means like the same way you would describe like a fine china, a special place setting that's not common. It's not for normal use. It's preserved and loved and wonderful. It's set aside for something special. Like, that doesn't mean anything. It means that when you look at your wife, you see something as a special gift that is given to you. You don't treat her in a base way. Matter of fact, that verse goes on, 1 Peter 3, 7. It says that if you don't treat your wife right, God doesn't hear your prayers. And I get that because I have three daughters. He sees it as a special affront to him when you don't cherish his daughters. And I, I think I might know. I think I might know your objection because it's the same thing I feel. Like It's the same thing. Like You're saying, sure, this works if both people do their part. If both people come under this and both people say, hey, no if then, no matter what, I'm going to be loving to my wife. I'm going to sacrifice for. I'm going to do that. And and then the wife looks at her husband and says, no matter what, I have my hope in God. I'm going to look and I'm going to be respectful. It doesn't mean I don't say things. It doesn't mean I don't stand up on things. It means that there's a demeanor that I just want to build him up. Like This works if both people look at each other and say, this is what I want. Want to do. But this, if only one person does it, could be a recipe for exploitation. Yes. Yes. That's why the outpouring of the gospel in your life is always directed to this submissiveness in your heart that you can now fight your selfishness and your self-centeredness And that's why it's close to the heart of the God. And the closer we get to the heart of God, the truer we can walk in the humanity He created us to walk in. How does anyone fight selfishness without the gospel of Jesus in their life? Now, by the grace of God, they do. When two people are filled with the Spirit, they can get they can get married and they can walk in a relationship that looks like this. The gospel is at war against your selfish needs for the others to think about you. The the gospel makes you put the needs of others before your own. This is why everyone says you should be careful about who you marry. The Bible insults our cultural values by instructing a form of marriage, but it feels more trustworthy to me And it explains more of what I see when things go wrong. And it paints a more beautiful picture of what marriage could be and actually gives me tracks to follow. Not everyone agrees with this, but you have to do something with the words of Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. The first thing, and the much longer point, is that God gives form to marriage. The second is the danger of marriage. And the danger of marriage is just this. It's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. Verse 32 says that marriage points to something else. Look back at verse 32 for me. It says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The marriage relationship points to a greater relationship, a relationship with our Creator God through the person of Jesus, and this is seeing marriage as a signpost. That means as good as marriage can be, it's a signpost to something far, far greater. And so it's just like this. If you were going to Disney World and you're driving from the airport to get to Disney World and on I-4 you see a sign that says, turn here to Disney World. And you just got out and you said, we've arrived. This is the most magical place on earth. And you just kind of celebrated whatever pictures it would be for that signpost. And then you got back in the car and you went home. You missed on the greater thing it was pointing to. Verse 32 says, marriage is a signpost. You would have missed out on the flight of the Avatar, the greatest ride ever made. You would have missed out. And so this does build a beautiful picture, but it says it's pointing to something even better. See, whether you're married or single, we are in great, great danger of thinking romance is the solution to fulfill me. We, we are in great danger whether you know many single people and married people are hurting because their spouse or the dream of a future spouse doesn't seem able to give me what I need. Because they can't. They can't. No one can. No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood in your life. If God is not the most important thing in your life, you Will be hollow and you will crush all those around you. See what we want? We want the, the things that we try to lay on romantic relationships. We, we try to lay things like, I want to be rid or unencumbered or even blind to my fault. I don't want to see them. Marriage can't do that for you. Or or we, we want to be justified before others, like we think that it's going to change the way the world looks at us. And when they fail us, we think, what happened? Marriage can't do that for you. Or we, w- we want this deep sense in our souls that we have this deep sense in our souls that we're not quite enough. And we think, man, if I just had someone who just loved me like that, it would wipe all that away. Or we want to know that our life matters and that our existence has meaning. We want to be accepted and loved despite our flaws and our imperfections that plague us. Those are haunting insecurities that both singles and married people have. And those fears, they're meant to drive us to God. No other relationship can accomplish or solve those things for us. Those haunting insecurities and fears are meant to drive us to God out of our need. And many husbands and wives have crushed their spouse with those insecurities and fears. Why can't you fix me? Because they're a mess. Because you're a mess. And I'm a mess and my wife's a mess, and then we have kids, and they're little messes, but they make big messes, and we expect that's gonna somehow fulfill like my deep insecurities. It doesn't work that way. Or, or many moms and dads have sacrificed their children to the damning edicts of those same fears and insecurities. I'm gonna live my life through you. How dare you make me look that way? And their kids are crushed. Or We, we do this with friendships. We, we look at our friendships and we say, you weren't there enough for me. Why, why didn't you say that? Or why didn't you do that for me? Or why didn't you know that this happened in my life? And I'm like, because I'm not on Facebook very much. Like, I don't know what's going on unless you tell me. Like, we say these things. We put so much weight on these relationships. And that weight does have purpose. It's meant to draw us to the person of Jesus. Do I have purpose? Do I matter? Can I be accepted? Am I lovable or am I too flawed? The danger of our culture is that we have made romantic love a God and we are taking that list to our fake God and demanding that they fulfill what only the real God can do. It will crush them and it will hollow you. Only Jesus can bear that kind of weight. Paul says marriage is a signpost that points to that kind of relationship. The Bible says that marriage, even the best marriage is pointing to something far better. No human being, no relational status can fulfill you. But what can? The spousal love of Jesus. Now, I'm going to do something a little blasphemous here. I I, I want us to to read John 1, 9 through 12. And we're going to read it as it is first. And then I want to change a relationship in there. So look at this. John 1, verses 9 through 12. Now, this, this is a passage where it tells us how do we become saved? How do we respond to the gospel? How do we get into a relationship with Jesus? And so look at it. In verse 9, it says... The true light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is the light of this relationship that marriage can point to for everyone. But it's just a signpost. The true light has come. And so verse 10 says he, Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Like It says it's available, but, to, but people have to like know Him. It's here. There's a relationship out there that can carry all the weight and all the burdens that's to fulfill your soul. It's there, but you have to see Jesus in the world. Now, verse 11, it says, He, Jesus, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, but to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now let me just change that, just a little blasphemous. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, he gave them the right to enter into the never-ending, always-accepting, spousal love of God. It says that we have to believe that Jesus has that. It says that we have to receive what he offers, and he offers it in a relationship with him that the best marriage is only a sign post pointing to it. The question is, do you know God like that? Like, that's not knowing things about God. That's not knowing the scriptures front and back. That's a relational knowing to God that in good times and difficult times, when the grace of God is comfortable like a soothing salve, or when it's uncomfortable because it shows my need, or when it's painful because it's a season of pruning, that I see the good nature of God in my life pushing on me, protecting me pampering me the best marriages they're only a signpost to the spousal love of God that never leaves and never forsakes and has called you in and says I will heal every wound to receive that you believe in Jesus and you receive Jesus for who he says he is Savior and Lord Let me pray for us. Jesus, Lord, I I thank you. You're good. And Lord, sometimes it's hard to see the grace of God where I am right now. But that's a place where we preach to our heart that God has not faltered. God is still there. And for some of us, like where do I need a singing heart? Where do I need a thankful heart? Where do I need to express just more submissiveness to how you're leading and what you're doing and what you say? Lord, the spousal love of God can press all of that into our lives. Or Lord, maybe, maybe it's this, like where am I crushing others to get what only you can give me? Where am I crushing my wife or my husband for my deep fears and insecurities trying to fill them? That only you can do something about that. Or a real simple question, have I received the never-ending, always-accepting spousal love of God through Jesus Christ? Lord, you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Free City Church, I love you more than you know, and I hope to see you soon.